Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Ephesians, the fourth chapter, verses 1 through 3. Hear now God's Word. Therefore, the prisoner of the, I, the prisoner of the, excuse me, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And thus far, the reading of God's Word and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Today, the Scriptures, the Word of God, is, as it often does, uh, going to shine a light on the inside of you and me. Since it's our sinful hearts that are the ultimate problem, that means that if there is to be any remedy to our problems, it will start its work in our hearts. What's in our hearts always works itself out through our mouths and through our hands and our feet in very tangible ways. There are many dark dark crevices in the human heart, aren't there? We spend a fair amount of our time trying to cover them up rather than clean them up. But the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit is to expose them, to remove them, and to transform us into the image of His Son. We're called to live lives of gratitude. And we do so as we look more and more like Him. As Paul wrote earlier in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, our calling to follow Christ is a calling to live a different sort of life. We are new creations. We are part of a new humanity. All of the old ways of living have to change. The antithesis is old and new, dark and light, death and life. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things, everything has become new. And so, he says, we are called to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. To walk is to move. It's to make progress. It is to actively pursue the goal. This general call is expanded upon now by the Apostle. And he tells us specifically that we are to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He has already said in chapter 1, verse 10, that the primary objective of God, even before the foundation of the world, was this. That in the dispensation of the fullness of time, in other words, when it's all completed, after all the ages have passed, his goal is that he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and on earth, in him. 
That's the grand goal. To reunite, to bring together. Remember, sin separated. Sin kills. Heaven and earth started out united in paradise. Adam walked with God, but sin introduced a disruptive force that tore that unity apart because sin always separates and sin always kills. Dr. Lloyd-Jones describes sin this way. It divides a man within and against himself. It has produced a constant fight and struggle, which we are all aware of in our lives. There is the constant problem of good and bad, right and wrong, shall I, shall I not? Sin also produces division between man and man. It leads to enmity and war and strife. The world has been shattered by sin. As I have previously said, sin is the cause of every last problem that you have. Every problem your family has and every problem the world has. God made man and woman to extend his Trinitarian communion of love, but sin shattered that communion. That union is broken. Therefore, central to the work of salvation is the removal of sin and the restoration of communion, the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Communion was always a means of glorifying God, and thus it remains the primary goal of God's great plan to gather together all things in Christ, in heaven and earth, in Him. This means that we are called to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So let's consider what this unity looks like and what it doesn't look like. We might be tempted, as many have been, to think we simply need to lay down all of our differences and, and uh, the unity, in the unity of the spirit of friendship and brotherliness. Let's just all get along. There was a popular phrase in the 1960s ecumenical movement which says, let's tear down the walls of doctrine. Doctrine just separates. Doctrine is what divides us. Another phrase, again, was that truth divides, but love unites. But this is a false antithesis, which is a fallacy. I started doing this, and I'm going to read a few brief sections of lyrics of songs from this period, and I realized I could do this all day long. Um, the Youngbloods wrote a popular song in 1967 that captured the, this spirit that I'm talking about. And here, here's the chorus. Come on, people now. Smile on your brother. Everybody get together. Let's try, uh, excuse me, let's love one another. And then it adds these words, right now. Let's just decide to do it. Let's just decide to all get along. And John Lennon's famous song, Imagine, published in 1971, A Brotherhood of Man, imagine all the people sharing all the world. You, you may say that I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us. And the world will live as one. Unity. It's a great goal. Why don't we just decide to do it? 
In other words, we need not to be too picky about what we believe as long as we have the spirit of brotherly love. Or how about the Coca-Cola ad from 1971, this campaign? I'd like to buy the world a home and furnish it with love. Grow apple trees and honeybees and snow-white turtle doves. I'd like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. And I'd like to buy the world a Coke and keep it company. That's the real thing. The Hollies, 1969. He ain't heavy. He's my brother. We can just help each other. Let's just have a group hug. You see, the world is still full of these sentiments. And the sentiment is not a bad one. Unity is a great goal. That was the, that was the objective of communion that God made us for. And I think that's why that yearning is in everyone. The world is still full of this, but their approach is a false hope. There is no basis of unity without truth. So this cannot possibly be the kind of unity the Apostle Paul is talking about. The unity that he is calling for us to endeavor to keep is the result of everything he has already laid out in the first three chapters of Ephesians. This chapter begins with the word, therefore. There is no Christian unity apart from the doctrines that are laid out in chapter 1 through 3. This is of necessity a theological unity, a unity rooted in how God thinks about the world and is built upon the foundation of absolute truth. The word spirit is referring not to some general spirit of brotherly love, but rather to the Holy Spirit. This is not like school spirit or team spirit. Again, it is the Holy Spirit. He is the one that produces unity. And we are being called to be careful not to break that unity. We don't create the unity. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. The unity that the Holy Spirit creates, though, is way more than an organizational unity. It is an organic unity. If we look at a flower, if we were to take a flower and, and study it, we'd see roots and stem and leaves and petals and all the other parts that come together in an organic unity, a living thing, and the body is the same way. That is the picture of unity. When a person is indwelt by the Holy Spirit and they meet another person who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, there is a unity and a communion that quickly emerges. I felt that so many times, meeting someone and within five minutes or ten minutes or in a very short period of time, there it's like we've known each other for a lifetime. He unites us. Second Corinthians 3.14 The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That's going to be our benediction for today. The communion of the Holy Spirit. 
This is also seen outwardly when we join a church and when we worship together. But that unity originates internally. So what's the duty that is placed upon us in this text? Endeavoring is the verb that Paul uses in verse 3. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This means more than just making a bit of an effort. It's not like, well, I tried to have unity. It's some kind of a minimal approach. It's a little effort. Rather, the Greek word carries with it the idea of making haste, diligence, labor, exertion, study. Those are all contained in this idea. It suggests speed. We're to get after it. We're endeavoring to keep. This unity, our communion, is to be guarded, preserved, protected. God has blessed us with a good church. But if we don't stay diligent, if we don't endeavor to keep it that way, if we don't keep short accounts, if we don't maintain relationships, if we don't build relationships, if we don't labor in this, we will lose it. We are not to be negligent, but rather endeavor to keep. And this is to be a high priority. We must take great pains to see to it that the unity is kept. Now in verse 2, Paul describes what will be required of us if we are to accomplish this. He says that we are to do this with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. As with most things, the real work is in the heart, our internal attitude and perspective. Lowliness is, another way we might say that, is humility of mind or modesty. This is the opposite of pride and arrogance. Humility is always attractive and winsome, which are also necessary if we want to keep the unity in the bond of peace. And by the way, we are called to do this at home. We're called to do this at school and at work. If you sit above others and you're frequently looking down in judgment, then you have some real work to do. If you have a condescending, critical spirit, then this is the opposite of what is required to keep the, keep the unity in the bond of peace. Because humility is one of the key Christian virtues. So let me begin by asking, asking you if it is primary in you. Primary. What would others say? What would they say about you in this regard? In addition to being lowly or humble, Paul says we are to be gentle and meek. And this is another quality that is not optional for Christians. Now, sometimes people mistake meekness for weakness. But that's clearly not the case in the Bible. Moses, we are told, was the meekest of all men, and yet he was strong. Jesus was also meek. 
Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And Why? Because I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden light. Meekness means that we have a readiness to suffer, to be wronged, if need be, and then to trust God. That's what it means to be meek. The Apostle Paul modeled this gentleness in chapter 3 where he said in verse 8, To me who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given. That's how Paul viewed himself. See, we look at the Apostle Paul and think he's one of the greatest. That's not how Paul saw himself. He wasn't looking down on everybody else. He wasn't wagging his bony finger of indignation at everybody else. Why aren't you... Like me, he does call us to imitate him, but only wherever he's imitating Christ. But he saw himself this way. 2 Corinthians 10.1 Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. 2 Timothy 2.23 and 24 But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. And a servant of the Lord must not be quarrelsome, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient. You see, there are going to be many people who disagree with you. A lot of them live at your house. Does that annoy you? Does that easily anger you? When that happens, are you humble and gentle or quarrelsome and condescending? Because, you see, your first job, first job is to endeavor to keep the unity in the bond of peace. The Apostle Peter gives a similar admonition in chapter 1 Peter 5, 5. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud. And gives grace to the humble. God says that he exalts the humble in due time. But the reverse of that is true, I might remind you. That he brings low the arrogant. I'm afraid that some of us might have some rude awakenings ahead of us. Notice also that Paul uses the word all. All lowliness and gentleness. That means that you're to be humble and meek in every situation, all the time. Lowliness and gentleness are to be your habit, your reputation, what you are known for, in public, in private, at home and abroad. You see, if you're humble in public, but a private fault finder at home or with your friends, it's not enough. In fact, that would only reveal that your heart is not humble and meek, and that your public humility is really only a display of your pride. You only want to be thought of as humble and meek. You're not really humble and meek. And so the fact is, these qualities are to be fundamental to who we are since we're to be like Christ. And in Romans 12:3, Paul admonishes each of us to not think of himself more highly than he ought to. 
You know what? It is entirely possible that you're mistaken. With lowliness and gentleness as our foundation, these will be manifested by way of long-suffering and our bearing with one another, or we might say putting up with each other. And so what this means is that when, our, when others irritate you with their attitude, with their words, with their conduct, you respond like Jesus and you don't lose control and give in to your emotions. The idea here is to hold on, don't give in, resist the temptation to lash out, to unload, to humiliate, to crush. That's what long-suffering is. Don't do that. Don't do the thing that you're inclined to do. Don't respond in that natural way, but in a supernatural way. God Himself is long-suffering, and you know how I know that? Is because we're still here. You are followers of Christ, and here's your opportunity to follow Him where it matters. It's easy to be a Christian when it's easy. But where it matters is when it's hard. Not only are we to suffer long, that is to be patient, we're to bear with each other, put up with each other. The Bible keeps on, again, making these supernatural demands to turn the other cheek and to bless those who curse us and to not return insult for insult, but a blessing instead. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. Not one. And now it tells me that I have to put up with my husband or my wife or my children or my parents or my brother or my sister. Kids, let me say something to you. Are you loving and gracious and gentle and meek toward your brothers and sisters? And parents, are you insistent that your children are gentle and meek toward one another? I know how it is with siblings. It's hard. But hard's not an excuse to be disobedient. You're preparing them to be what God has called them to be. Followers of Jesus every day. And that starts with children. How about that annoying kid in your class? Is it okay to pick on him or be irritated to him or make smart remarks about him? How about showing some kindness to him? Maybe you don't know very much about him. Or her. Here's your opportunity to extend and share some of the grace that God has shown you. How about you try to understand them? Perhaps they've had a bad day or a bad week, or how about some of them have just had a bad life? Perhaps they've not had it as good as you, or they're not as smart or pretty or witty or funny as you. You see, endeavoring to keep the unity and the bond of peace means you're looking for reasons to demonstrate the love of Christ, not reasons to exalt yourself. And so Paul adds one last and important part of this call. With all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another, 
in love. When you love people, you always put their best interest ahead of your own. That's what love is. You, like Christ, sacrifice yourself for them. Living lives that are worthy of our calling, you see, transforms us into gentle servants of others, of all. And so I, like the Apostle Paul, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you are called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let's pray. Father, we love to find fault in other sinners. We know what's wrong with everyone but ourselves. We think we know how to remove specks from the eyes of others, and as a result, we not only don't endeavor to keep the unity in the bond of peace, we're often the cause of the disunity and strife in our homes, our places of work, our schools, and our church. Lord, give us eyes to see ourselves before you and hearts full of grace toward others. Help us to be peacemakers, lovers of sinners, humble and gentle. Enable us to suffer long with and bear with our brothers and sisters in Christ that we might contribute to the gathering together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. And we do pray in his name. Amen. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. As we come to the table to renew our covenant commitment, To be true followers of Jesus, I want to ask you to do a little soul searching this morning. Are you a peacemaker? Do you remember that Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. This is the calling to which we have been called. Again, that means it starts in your heart and shows up first at your house. If we fail here, then we fail everywhere. There is a greater right than being right. And if your way of being right breaks the peace, then you're wrong. This is the table of communion, a picture of what ought to be true of every Christian all the time and in every place. No matter what you're going through, no matter what others are doing or not doing, God has called you to do it with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. In fact, this is simply the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, 
Against such there is no law, and those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So let us not quench the Spirit or grieve the Spirit, but let us allow the Spirit to produce His glorious fruit through us, and in us, for his glory, and for our good. Glorious God of heaven and earth, our creator, sustainer, and redeemer, we are grateful for and praise you for this Lord's Day, which you have set apart for your own glory, that we might delight in it and feast before you. We are thankful for our regular employments, and we are thankful that they are set aside each week, that we might focus upon you and your worship and join in concert and fellowship with your covenant people. We thank you for our faithful ancestors in the faith who walked with you and prayed for us and advanced your gracious covenant through history. Thank you for your holy Catholic Church and for your drawing men of every tribe and tongue to yourself in Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would make us one, even as you and the Son are one. Sanctify us and make us faithful that we might be one with those generations of your people that will follow us. Lord, glorify Yourself in us that all men might know that You have sent Your Son and that You have loved us. And may our love for You and for one another be manifest to all. Bless us now as we feast and we pray that You would indeed go with us this day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.